Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint were all missionaries to Ecuador in the mid-1950s. Five men in their late 20s and early 30s who gave up the comforts of America to take the awesome news of Jesus Christ to the Waharani people. The Waharani were savages. They, they were considered by some anthropologists to be the most violent tribe ever encountered. One estimate said that 60% of Waharani deaths were homicides. These five men and their families wanted Jesus to change that. And so they risked their lives to go to these people. They, they used this small airplane and a long rope and a bucket to drop down gifts into the village uh, for them uh, to, to just put you know, kindness forward. I think they even said some things over an intercom from the plane to communicate in Waharani uh, some friendly messages. And they set up a, a small camp near the village and they spent some time with a few Waharani and even gave one a ride in the airplane. On January 8, 1956, 10 Waharani warriors visited their camp and brutally murdered the five men with spears and machetes. All five men had wives at the base. Four had children. Surprisingly, the missionary men had handguns. They could have killed those warriors. Flat out, could have killed them, returned to their families, but they only fired warning shots in the air to scare the Waharani. See, they had each committed that they would die before they took the life of any Waharani. They risked because Christ and his mission were most important in their lives. It was more important than them living. It was more important than them going back to their families. How could five missionary homicides produce fruit, any fruit. What good comes out of that? Well, three of the five missionary widows remained in Ecuador working to disciple the Waharani. God blessed their work. The Waharani stopped the killings. Stopped the, stopped the killings, and the 250-person tribe grew over time into 2,000 people and currently, one-third of Waharani's are Christians. God's grace compelled those missionaries to love each other, obey, and go to the Waharani in the name of Christ. And there's something profound that makes something like that possible. Jesus gives his commands in light of his sovereign grace which produces in us what he commands of us. Jesus can produce in us what he commands of us. Jesus doesn't tell you to do anything that he is not capable of doing in and through you. Think about that. Jesus doesn't tell you to do anything that he is not capable of doing in and through you. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Believe that. That's true. But when you abide in Christ, whatever Jesus commands you to do, however unattainable it may seem to you, Christ can do it in and through you. Ephesians 3 verses 20 and 21 says that Christ is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power, it says, the power at work within us. 
Verses 1 through 11 in John 15 exhibit what God does for us, his sovereign grace. And, you know, if you focus on you, you'll likely try to obey Christ's commandments on your own, which will either produce pride in you or hopelessness in you. I just can't measure up. Abide in Christ and obedience and blessing will come in your life. Christ alone produces in us what he commands of us. Well, what did Jesus command his disciples the night before his death? Love. Love. Jesus commands sacrificial love. Verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this that someone lays down his life for his friends. And Jesus said this earlier in John 13, 35. So he's driving the point home. He's making sure that his disciples get it. Love each other, love each other, love each other, love each other. Just like I've loved you. Love is often misunderstood. Infatuation and lust are often mistaken for love. But there's another way that love is misunderstood. It's all over the place in intolerant America. Love is often reduced to civility and politeness. Just be civil to each other. Just, just be nice. Just be a nice person. And you're a loving person. But that's not what love is. Love is not being nice. Jesus delineated love with a few simple words. As I have loved you. That's it. That's the kind of love he's commanding. Now, Christine and I want to want to teach our kids a hard work ethic, right? How to work hard. And, and I'm going to say it's a little challenging. We don't live on a farm. We don't have a lot of property or cows to take care of. Maybe we should get some. That'd be interesting. But anyway, uh, Christina was training Maria how to wipe down some cabinets in the, the bathroom. And Maria was sort of erratically wiping. And, uh, and so Christina showed her how to wipe back and forth to make it clean, to, to do a good job. And and for Maria, cleaning was then defined by what she saw her mommy do. So how does she understand cleaning? She's going to look at Christina, wiping back and forth, and that's going to define for her what cleaning is. You won't know sacrificial love until you see it in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Culture's not going to show you sacrificial love. Where do you look? I'd love to see some examples. Once in a while, there is. You need to study the life of Christ in the Bible in great detail to know what kind of love Jesus commands. You see, verse 13 is an illustration of the kind of love that Jesus commands. Someone dies for someone else. Jesus commands a love that would go as far as laying your life down for someone else. And obviously, it includes everything up until that point. That point. Because sometimes you're like, yeah, I'd be able to give my life for someone. But you're not willing to like ask them how they're doing, check up on it, give them accountability, whatever. It includes everything up until that point. But verse 13 is greater than us on a human level laying down our lives for someone. Jesus seemed to be pointing to himself. He was foreshadowing his substitutionary death, which is the preeminent expression of love. 
superlative love was expressed in the cross. Was expressed when Jesus took the place of his disciples on the cross, paid their sin debt in full, absorbed the wrath of God for them in full, and liberated them to love and serve God. We can't love like that. That Only Christ can. That's extravagant love. But be assured, if Jesus who commands us to love like him, then he also, and if he loved like that, then he also has the power to enable us to love as he commands us. Dear Christian, Jesus commands you to sacrifice yourself for us. I really want you to get that. I want you to hear that. Jesus commands you. He demands you to sacrifice yourself for us. That's what this is about. Am I overstating it? Consider 1 John 3.16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then in verse 18, he said, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And my friends, it is so easy for us to just say, I'm going to love you. Oh, of course I love you. Go and be blessed and be well fed. And then we're not ready to actually get in the trench with each other and love, love, love in practical ways. We've got to do it. Jesus actually expects you to get in the game and do it, to love people, not just to talk about it, not just to say, yeah, I know what Jesus says. What have you done in the last month to sacrifice yourself to love your brother or sister in Christ? What have you done? That's a fair question. I can actually think of some examples. And this is fun. Christina's been sick. That's not so fun. Christina's been sick, and on Wednesday, my mom sacrificed and spent a, a bunch of hours and came up and helped Christina to clean our house. That was really helpful. Nancy Shank called me this week and wanted to set up meals for our family. On Thursday, Tim Thompson and I prayed together, and that brother prayed for some deep spiritual needs I have. He wants to see me grow. I got a text from Karen Becker this week about how she could serve our family. Who's supposed to love and care for this congregation? We all are. We all are. It's your job to love each other. Jesus commands you to love each other, and he commands you to love each other like he loves you. Imagine what our church would be, what Jerusalem church would be if we did what Jesus asked us to do on this point. If we loved each other so extravagantly, just imagine what this place would be like. If we love like this, like he loved us, isn't sacrificial love the mark of true friendship? If you're truly a friend, you'll lay down your life for your friend. So let's explore that a little bit. A true friend of Jesus does what he commands. A true friend of Jesus does what he commands. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. That's pretty simple. Now, does Jesus consider you his friend? The answer is... Are you obeying him? Are you obeying him? And his most immediate command was to love each other. So you're a friend of Jesus only if you are loving each other. 
Doing what Jesus commands is not how you become a friend of Jesus. Okay, it's evidence you are a friend of Jesus. Romans 5 says this, I love this. God shows his love for us in that we were still sinners. Sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for us when we were all like, yeah, man, I am into Jesus. No, we were sinners. We didn't like him. He died for us to redeem us, to make us his friends. And then Paul goes on, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We were enemies and he gave his life. We were enemies and he reconciled us to God. Now your birth certificate authenticates your citizenship. Your obedience to Christ authenticates your friendship with Christ. John 13, 35 and John 15, verse 8 strongly suggest that as well. Check those out. We were Christ's enemies, but through his sacrificial love and grace, he made us his friends. We're not worthy to be called friends of Jesus, but that's what Jesus calls us if we do what he commands. It doesn't get any better than the Son of God, the eternal Son of God calling you his friend, his close friend. You can see why obedience brings so much joy in the life of a Christian. Does Jesus consider then everyone his friend? Is everybody just friends with Jesus? No. No, he knows who his real friends are. They are the people who obey him. Those are his friends. Think about the meaning of if. Take a look at verse 14. Think about what if means. If you don't do what he commands, by inference, you're not his friend. Jesus has plenty of enemies. The Bible talks about them. The Bible says Christ must reign and put all enemies under where? His feet. His feet. James 4.4 says that friendship with the world is enmity, strong word, with God, and that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You want to win the world? You want to be a friend of the world? You're going to be an enemy of God. Not a friend. You can identify the enemies of Jesus by locating the people who don't do what Jesus commands and instead want to be friends with the world. Does Planned Parenthood want to be a friend of the world or a friend of Jesus? Do they want to do what he commands? What about the LGBT community? What about the Supreme Court? What about Hollywood? Does the Department of Education in the United States of America do what Jesus commands? What about the media? Let's get a little closer to home. What about mainline Protestant denominations? Let's not deceive ourselves. There are plenty of people that may even profess Christ, may even profess to know Christ, but don't give a hoot. They don't care about doing what Jesus says. And Jesus does not consider them his friends. Jesus made the litmus test pretty obvious. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. He said all of that to his disciples the night before his death in the upper room. He's making a point here, folks. Love and obedience are important. You know, the question really isn't whether we consider Jesus our friend. 
It's really about whether Jesus considers us his friends. Here's how we can tell if Jesus considers us to be his legitimate friends. We live and die to do what he says. We breathe for Jesus. Anything you want of me, I will give. Whatever you say, I will do. Because you are so precious to me, Jesus. You just say it, and I'll get to it. Now, of course, we're not perfect, but our lives must be categorized by joyful submission. There's more. A true friend of Jesus knows what Jesus has done and is doing. Now, when you're a teenager, we have some teenagers in here, uh, and you might develop a crush for someone, who, who would you tell about that? Who knows your dreams and your aspirations in life? When something really, really good happens to you, who do you tell first? Well, you don't just tell anybody. You tell your closest friends. Friends tell friends the details of life. They give them the inside scoop. They open up themselves to each other. The sincerity is evidence of true friendship. Jesus did that with 11 men. He told them incredibly good things because he considered them to be his closest friends. He said, no longer do I call you servants or slaves. That either one would be a good translation for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Well, it's a great day when the son of God calls you his friend and tells you what God says. That's a good day. Back in John 13, 16, after washing their feet, Jesus implied that his disciples were his servants. But here he called them friends. He was giving them the inside scoop of God. You see, masters don't sit down and have a heart-to-heart with their servants. Masters just tell the servants what to do, and they respond. That's the expectation. But friends, friends are different. Friends are close. Friends get the details. Jesus was their master. They were his servants, but they were more. They were so much more. He called them friends. He confided in them. What Jesus heard from God, he then explained to his disciples. In John chapters 3, 7, 8, 12, and 14, Jesus made it absolutely clear that he was speaking the words, the message of God. That's what Jesus came to communicate, God's message. The 11 disciples really were beloved friends. You can see that because Jesus made absolutely sure that they got it. He even sent the Holy Spirit, if you know Christian history, to come to them to bring to their remembrance all that he had taught. Jesus made absolutely sure that they got the message of of God, that it sunk in. He explained God's plan to them. He called them friends. And in that designation was assurance that they would do what he commanded and that he would produce in them the fruit that he wanted. If he's calling them friends, he knows what he's going to do in them in the future. This is sovereign grace. Jesus was confident to call them friends because he was confident of the fruit he would produce in them during the coming years. He knew Peter would betray him But that didn't mean they weren't friends. Because later on, look what Jesus produced in the life of Peter. He didn't say this when Judas was still around, did he? Judas is gone. Judas wasn't Jesus' friend. But even Peter, three times. And yet he was a deep, close friend. 
That's grace. That's sovereign grace. Listen closely. I think this can really help you. God has laid out for you his plan in the Bible. He's told you what he has done, what he is doing. And he even goes as far to tell you what he is going to do. Jesus is not silent. He speaks to his friends through the Bible. Every letter of the Bible is read. And Jesus doesn't just bark out orders. He carefully explains the relevance. He shows us the blessing. He explains why it is good for you to do it. Whatever he asks you to do, every friend of Jesus gets access to God's thoughts. And if they're careful to read the Bible and dig in, God is going to talk to them and tell them exactly what's going on. Now, I want you to think about this, about something, before we head into verse 16. Ben Roethlisberger is a quarterback for the Steelers, and uh, he gets paid, this year he will get paid $46 million to play football for the Steelers. Now, why do the Steelers want him? Chad, you're not allowed to answer that, because he would just say, I don't know. I don't know why I want him, you know? Let me give you a couple reasons of why they want Ben Roethlisberger. Last year, he led the NFL in passing yards, tied with Drew Brees. He's ranked 16th in career passing yards of any quarterback in NFL history. And he's still playing. There's still time, folks. See that? He threw 32 touchdowns last year. The Steelers want Ben Roethlisberger because he gets it done. Because he's a good player. Because he performs on the field. So naturally, if you think that through from a spiritual perspective, pride is going to be tempting for Ben Roethlisberger. Why? Ben was recruited because of what he can do. That's why they brought him on the team. His performance keeps him around. You know, if he's completing 32% of the passage and throwing three touchdowns a year, done. Bye-bye, Ben. All right? Everyone knows he's there because he performs. So what if God called you his friend? What if you did amazing miracles? What if God washed your feet? What if God sat down with you in person and explained unfathomable truths, just incredible things? What if God promised you to prepare a special place for you? What if God said that you would do great things? What if God said he'd do whatever you asked him to do? What if God said he loved you? What if God called you his friend? Wow. You might be tempted in that to think that God loves you because of how great you are. Luke 22 tells us that at this upper room occasion... With Jesus, the disciples actually got into an argument over which one of them would be considered the greatest. They're in the presence of God and they're bickering about... <laughs> Honestly, you think you any could live up to me, right? John, right? John, come on, man, I'm Peter. You understand what I'm going to do? I mean, I'm clearly better than you. I think this next point's going to intrigue you here. A true friend of Jesus joyfully receives his sovereign grace, authority, and commission. 
First, a true friend of Jesus joyfully receives his sovereign grace. What do I mean by sovereign grace? Well, what I mean is that your salvation is entirely a gift of God. You contribute nothing. Nothing. It is 100% God's grace gift to you. You didn't choose God. God chose you. He elected you. He predestined you. He gave you the repentance and faith that would justify you as a gift. Our salvation begins with God's sovereign grace and choice. Now, it was customary in the time for students to actually pick their rabbis. And, and they would go to these rabbis, the ones that they really wanted to. And if the rabbis deemed them worthy, they could be their disciples. And Jesus shattered that tradition. He didn't get, give a rip. He just shattered it. He did it a different way. He pursued them. He chose them. He went after them. Jesus looked at his disciples in this very vulnerable moment, and he humbled them with these simple words, You did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. It's plain as day. Jesus chose them. Their choice to follow Jesus was entirely predicated upon Christ's choice of them. The decisive choice was Christ's. Now, the word used twice here is eklego, a compound word of ek meaning from or out of, and lego meaning colorful plastic building blocks. Are you awake? All right, stay with me. Come on, people. The kids are like, yes, building blocks and Greek. All right, so lego means to gather, to collect. So ek lego means to gather from or pick out or select for oneself from something. That's what that word means. What Jesus was saying is that he chose his disciples out from everyone else. Three verses later, Jesus said this, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you, same word, out of the world, therefore the world hates you. His disciples weren't the world, weren't of the world, because Jesus chose them out of the world. He pulled them out of that system that everybody else follows. Jesus went to them and Jesus saved them. The same word was used back in John 6, verse 70. And interestingly, the verse before, Peter said, verse 69, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter seemed to emphasize their belief, what they did. But Jesus emphasized his sovereign grace. Jesus answered like this, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Hey guys, don't, don't forget this. I chose you. I chose you. Jesus chose them for more than a position. He chose to save them. That's John 13, verse 8 and 10, and John 15, verse 3. And then he entrusted them with his mission. That's John 15, verse 16. The same word for chose is in Ephesians 1, 4, which says this. Even as he chose, there's the word, us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Every disciple of Jesus was chosen by God before the foundation of the world. To be saved, or as Paul put it, to be holy and blameless before God. In fact, verse 5, Paul said, God predestined them. Sometime this week, check out Romans 9, verses 6 through 18, and ask yourself this question. Did I choose God or did God choose me? 
Might be an eye-opening experience for you. Read it. Romans 9. It's obvious that Jesus in this moment wanted his disciples to understand that he chose them. The choice was not entirely theirs. It was his. That's sovereign grace. But here's the second thing. A true friend of Jesus joyfully receives Christ's authority over their life. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. You see, Jesus has supreme authority over everything, including us. He has the authority to choose. He has the authority to appoint. The Great Commission of Matthew 28, if you're familiar with that passage, begins with Jesus saying this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He possesses all authority. Jesus has authority over us. He has authority to choose and he has authority to appoint. Thirdly, a true friend of Jesus joyfully receives his commission. And I think this is where the weight of the tail end of my sermon is. Because I want to bring home an application that I hope really helps you and gets our blood moving. So I think this is where my primary emphasis is, what I'm pulling out of the text. Not necessarily where Jesus was, although I think it was, but commission. A commission is an order. It's a directive from someone who has authority. What did Jesus appoint his disciples to do? He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go. That you should go and bear fruit. That sounds like Jesus in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus chose them. Jesus appointed them to go and bear fruit. He sent them. And if you read the book of Acts, you're going to see his disciples going and bearing fruit. 3,000 people in a day. Boom. Saved. Added to the church. They were bearing fruit. They joyfully received his commission. What did he send them to do to bear fruit which almost certainly means in the context making disciples seeing people come to christ fruit fruitful evangelism and teaching is in view here jesus saved his disciples so they would go and they would preach the gospel and see people saved that's fruit and jesus said in verse 16 that their fruit would abide it would last it would remain and it has Think about this. We are fruit from the disciples' ministry, are we not? Was it not the book of John that saved you or the book of Romans or, or the truth that came out of Mark or Matthew or, or maybe Genesis or maybe something else? When you started to get the truth of God's word and it penetrated inside and you were saved, there are men behind that who wrote those under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to minister to your heart, to bless you, to reach out to you, to say, believe in Jesus Christ. We are fruit. That's amazing. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jesus. And notice what empowers the fruit bearing, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Prayer fuels the mission. Prayer fuels it. The disciples prayed and God responded. God did it. Millions of people were saved because by grace, the 11 did what Jesus commanded them to do. Have you ever asked yourself why God saved you? Why? Like if you really get the gospel and you really love Jesus, why? Why would God reach out to you and save you? Did you know that God saved you so you could see and savor his glory and thus bear fruit for his glory? That's why he saved you. 
Jesus saved you to accomplish something, to reach people with the gospel. He saved you to put you on mission. You're chosen. You're appointed. You are sent to accomplish something for God, not in the same way that the apostles were, but in a Christian way as a friend of Jesus. And the fruit that you produce is meant to last. It's meant to outlast you. What are you doing right now that will outlast you? What, what, what person way down the road might say, I'm a Christian today because six generations ago, my grandmother, my grandfather, what are you doing for God now that will abide or last? And I think there's an application here for our church. And here's my attempt to help you think this through. All right, let's say a new salesman is hired at Kreider Farms to get more eggs, milk, and ice cream into uh, different territories, new territories. And the sales team is already working really, really hard to get those products out there into more territories. But because they have team goals, they really need this new salesman to come in there and to do a good job. And so the new uh, salesman, uh, he is given this very promising territory, sales territory, and But every day, this salesman comes into the corporate offices, and he spends all day talking to the office employees, every day. And this is the kind of thing, he's like, hey, do you think we could get the air turned up in here a little bit? It's it's really hot outside. I, I just was in the break room, and can you believe they're out of Twinkies? I mean, who's on that? Who can we get to check that out? By the way, the toilet paper is, is low in the bathroom. Can we get maintenance to figure that out? Hey, are, are there any company polos left around? Because, you know, I really want to look good. Do you know why creators pick green and yellow for their colors? Because I think for a Mannheim company, maybe maroon and gray might, might work better. Don't you think maroon and gray are a better fit? Do you know where I could get some more sample chocolate milks? Because I just drank all mine. All right. And when I came into the office this morning, I heard that 1013, the rose, was playing. Don't you think it would be a better choice to put on 1057, the X? I heard that's what the cows enjoy. They give more milk under hardcore music, whatever. Hey, are you guys going to the company picnic? Because, man, I really hope they serve my favorite potato salad this year. It wouldn't take Kreider's very long to can that guy. He's not doing any good. Why? Because he doesn't get it. He just doesn't get the purpose. He's completely oblivious of what is going on. He's missing the point entirely. He's part of Kreider's. Absolutely, yes, he has been hired. But Kreider's doesn't exist for him. It's not about what he wants. Kreider Farms has a mission to achieve excellence in delivering low-cost, safe, high-quality products and service to our customers while being good neighbors and stewards of the land, operating clean, efficient, and state-of-the-art facilities, and creating a work environment of openness, honesty, trust, and personal satisfaction. That's what Kreider Farms is about. Kreider works to accomplish their mission, and a huge part of that mission is serving their customers with excellent products and services, and there are a lot of potential customers out there that are not currently carrying Kreider's products. And those customers or potential customers are not in the office. 
They're out there in the territory. So everyone at Criters needs to work together to show more people how awesome the Criters products are so that more people can enjoy the Criters products. Here is what I'm getting at. Jesus chose you. Jesus saved you. Jesus appointed you to help accomplish his mission. Not so you could come here Sunday by Sunday and have what you want. That's not the mission of the church. The mission exists outside of these walls. Jesus appointed us to go and to bear fruit that abides. Who are we leading to Jesus? We are not what this is all about. It's about Christ and advancing his gospel so more people worship him and God gets all the glory. So many churches similar to Jerusalem, just like us, close every year because it was all about them and not about God's mission. And God honestly just got tired of it and shut them down because he's going to put his favor upon churches who are willing to obey him at any cost. Did you know that every year in America, 4,000 churches close their doors? Do you know what's happening in the Church of America? Okay, somewhere along the line, those 4,000 churches lost the mission of God. God gave us a mission, and we need to pray, Jerusalem Church, that we don't get in the way of his mission. Our focus must be God's sovereign grace, God's authority, and God's commission. We need to join hands. There is not time to waste. Imagine if World War II, in the trenches, on the front line, facing the Germans, those soldiers are like, I don't like the color of your uniform. Why are you wearing your pants that way? Pick up the gun, turn it, and pull the trigger. Who cares about your hair? Who cares about if you lost your pocket knife? Shoot. We must join hands and lead people to Christ, all the while loving each other sacrificially. I'll give my life for you as I'm shooting here. Just know I've got your back. I will cover you, man, because the last thing I want you to do is go down. Folks, we just can't stay in our holy huddle. We got to say break. We got to go to the line. We got to run the play, and we have to gain some yards. We gotta go. We gotta move ahead. Look around. America is decaying fast. And please, please do not think that Lancaster County is a safe haven. It is not a safe haven. Millions of people are lost. People need Jesus. And Jesus is coming soon. God chose and appointed us to advance his gospel. And the gates of hell will not defeat him. If you're a true friend of Jesus, then he already handed you your orders. You know what to do. And if I can gently say it, get to it. He chose us to go. Last point. A true friend of Jesus loves other friends of Jesus because Jesus wants them to. That's why we love. Because we just want to please our Jesus, our best friend. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. His command came with force to produce in them the result of love for each other. He was going to do it. 
in them. Loving each other is tough. It is, it is just, we get just blitzed with hard things where we're like, I don't feel like loving right now. I want to cram it in someone's face. But Jesus wants us to. And so we say, all right, I'm going to love. Um, Jesus' friends are fully committed to his mission together. They link hands, man. We're, we can't be bickering and arguing. There's no time. We've got to head out. And uh, every true friend of Jesus is uh, doing that. And uh, let, me, let me just say this point of application when you start, when, when, when a change at Jerusalem Church, because more changes are coming, my friends, when a change gets in your crawl and you're like, I do not like that. For all these years, we've done it this way, and I don't like what you're doing. Okay? I just want you to stop, and I want you to ask this question to yourself. Could this change perhaps be rooted in meeting more people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Could this actually be a positive thing to take us into new territories where we have not been because the old stuff, in some senses, you have to listen to what I'm saying. We don't leave the gospel. We don't leave prayer. We don't leave singing good songs with theological weight. But some of those peripheral things that we tried years ago aren't producing fruit anymore. Do you know that there are churches in the United States that what we're doing here for their for their area, it's just not, not exploding. And so what they're doing is they're meeting in homes in these little groups. And then those groups are, are like outreach groups. And more people are coming. They're getting saved. And then those groups meet together in one big group kind of like this. But the focus is how can we reach people and do something different, something that we can try. We're not leaving Jesus. We're not leaving the gospel. We're not leaving the truth. We're not even leaving the methods of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not leaving that. That's what, G, that's what the Bible says. But I don't know if green carpet is in the scripture. I don't know if piano organ is in the scripture. I don't know if pews versus chairs is in the scripture. I mean, do you... I'm not seeing it. So we have to start thinking as a church, reach more, reach more. We're sent to go. We're sent to go. We're sent to move. What can we do strategically to advance the gospel to the people who need to hear it? That should consume us. That should, when we wake up, when we come to church, we should be thinking, how can we do this to reach more people? And, and if you're finding yourself just like, I just don't like that, you, you don't have the spirit of Jesus. Okay? You don't. Because he wants to reach people, never compromising what he has said in his commandments. But he wants to reach people with his gospel. And he is. And he's using great churches. And I think he's using this church. I could go through a bunch of things that I see Jesus advancing us forward. He's moving us. We're making some, some headway. Don't you want more? So as we make changes, just know your pastor and your elders and the ministry leaders of this church are trying to advance us forward to get somewhere where we've never been, to see people baptized maybe every Sunday up here because they're repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ. Don't you want that? So what can we do here to make sure, not make sure we can't, the Holy Spirit can do it, to try to have that happen, to, to just give something that we didn't try yet. Be faithful to the gospel, proclaim the gospel, proclaim Christ, and watch what he does. Elliot, McCulley, Udarian, Fleming, and Saint, they did it. 
They were friends of Jesus, chosen to love, obey, and go. And they did. They went. They loved each other. They, they wanted to obey Jesus. They did obey Jesus. They went. And they have an eternity. Just think about this. They have an eternity to enjoy their reward. And there are people that are fruit from their ministry that will enjoy that reward of Jesus Christ with them. It, read their story. It's phenomenal what they did and how God used their death to just convert people. And those people will be with all five of these guys forever. What about you? What about us? God, I just ask that you hear my plea, our plea. May the Holy Spirit work in us in a way that we actually reach people. I do not want to be going through the motions as a Christian man and not catching your incredible vision and mission in the world. I just don't want to miss that. And I am so prone to wander and grow lazy and not give a riff about my neighbor who's going to hell and I could just care less because I'm all focused about me, me, me and what I want. God, would you shatter my selfishness and forgive me for it and help me to be so consumed with the glory of God that I want to advance your mission. And God, if there's something at this church that's like one of those things in my heart that I'm having a hard time letting go of, help me to let go of those things for the sake of the advance of your gospel, to not make a big deal about it and to focus on the main things and creativity to reach people with Christ. Help me to go. Help me to lead by example. I want to show these people what it's like to share Christ with someone, evangelize, discipleship, give my life. Help me to give my life for this church. And I know it's not about me. I'm just the one saying the prayer right now, but help us all to do this for your fame. And God, would you bring people to Christ Please work your Holy Spirit's power from the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to do something radical. Don't feel 